Revelation chapter 13. And Lord willing, we will, uh, we will be finishing up chapter 13. Such a pleasure and such a privilege, as uh, Dean has said, to have... There we go. All right. All right. Don't mess with the microphone, Mike, right? That's how that works. So, all right. Again, uh, did everybody hear the reading of the word? Amen. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll begin tonight. And again, as we kind of touched on this last week, we began to look at this, this image. And this particular image, if you will, that John speaks of here is different from any other idol that's ever existed in humankind. It is a most interesting thing. In another display of his power to deceive, and remember we've been talking about this, ultimately this is what the false prophet is doing. He's bringing in a false religion, a one-world religion, and he's deceiving people as he goes along the way with his smooth words, you remember that. But here, this particular image, he is given the ability, which is a most stunning thing by God, to, to really, if you will, bring this image to life, which is really quite an amazing thing. And as it's brought to life, um, he is given the, the ability then to, to speak and then to, to really to kill those who refuse to worship the image, his own image, which is really quite an amazing thing. And I like what one pastor said, this power that was given to the false prophet is perhaps the apex of anything that God has ever allowed in the hands of the enemy. And I have to agree with that, amen. Just think of this for a moment. He's able to animate that which is from birth, something that's inanimate. It's an object, it's something that has no life in it, and he is given the ability by God to uh, animate this image here, if you will. In fact, look what the scripture says concerning any kind of an idol, any kind of a thing woven by the hands of men. It's an amazing thing. They are dead. They're without breath. I mean, over and over again, God speaks of these things. Isn't it interesting that men have this innate drive to, uh, to build an image, to build something out of a rock, to build something. In fact, God spoke of them. You know, he said, have you not considered You've molded this thing out of a tree, and you burn it with ashes. Have you not considered that? And yet men have just a crazy, innate, insatiable appetite to worship, if they're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship their own selves or to worship whatever may come along the way. Look here, if you would, in your Bibles for just a moment, concerning, really, again, this miraculous ability that God has given for this beast 
for this false prophet to bring this image to life. Look here what the Bible said. Just a couple of verses. Look at Psalms 135. Again, the Lord, the uniqueness of this. Again, over and over and over again, every other time in Scripture, this is what God says, except for here, where he's able and given the power to animate this inanimate object that has been, if you will, from birth, from its very inception, from its very beginning. Psalm 135, look there. Very uh, familiar portions of Scripture to us this evening. But look there, if you would, at verse number 15. Look what God says concerning this. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And again, this is just the crazy thing when you consider that. Someone who does not have the Spirit of God in them will bow down to something that is deaf, dumb, and they've made with their own hands. It's quite an amazing thing when you consider that. Even as a lost man, I could never figure that out, brother. As a, you know, growing up, and again, not to pick on the Catholic, but you grow up in the Catholic Church, they say there's no idols, but all they do is bow down to all the idols. It's an amazing thing to, to behold and, and, and to be really to watch. And this is what God says concerning how crazy and foolish, really, this really is. Look at verse 15. The idols are, of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath. That's the thing, brother. There's no breath in them. There's no life in them whatsoever. They're just simply a stone or a tree or whatever it is, something that men have made with their own hands. They make them like themselves, and yet there is no breath. There is absolutely no life in them whatsoever. Not this one. It's, again, an amazing thing that he has the power given by God to animate this thing that is an idol like none other. It's quite an amazing thing. In fact, in Habakkuk chapter 2, he again reiterates God again over and over again, these idols. There is no breath in them. There is no life in them. They are just simply dead, uh, inanimate objects, but not this one. <clears throat> again, this is an amazing thing when you consider the power of God and what he is allowing to be done. This is, I believe, the capstone of the lying wonders which the false prophet performs. It is the grand finale, as one pastor said, of his deception. This really is going to mesmerize. Not only did the, the rising again, the wound that was healed and he rose again, but this idea of coming back to life is quite a stunning thing when you consider that now. As this beast, this image of the beast is brought back to life, he begins now to incorporate some things into the world system. And again, brethren, this is most important for us as we consider this together tonight. Look here, if you would, at Revelation chapter 13. Look as he begins to cramp down, begins to crunch down on those who are upon the earth. Look here at verse number 16. Look what the Bible says there. And he causeth all. You know, sometimes in the Bible, all doesn't mean all. This means all because it gives us a definition of, uh, of uh, except for, of course, remember we saw that, apart from the elect of God who will be saved during this, but all, this is every corner of the earth, this is every corner, this is every, well, the roundness, the circular of the earth, every nook and cranny, all, he says, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, brethren, as part of the unholy plan to enforce the worship of the Antichrist, the false prophet will require all people to be given a mark in their right hand or forehead. Now, it's interesting here, brethren, this word that's used here is only used one other time outside of the book of Revelation. It's really interesting. This is definitely a unique word here. It means to scratch or etch, 
Literally, it means a badge of servitude used to signify that one who bears it is indeed a follower of the beast. Now, this mark has two purposes. There's, there's two purposes here that are incorporated by the beast. And one of them is quite interesting as I sat and thought about that for a while, considering these things in my own little mind whirling around. First, it preserves the unsaved. It preserves the unsaved, brethren, from the wrath of the beast that is about to be unleashed on the, on the elect of God. It's a most stunning thing here because the elect of God will not take the mark. The wrath then is going to be poured out on who? The, the beast himself. It's, it, it's just such a stunning thing for the mind to um, comprehend. And one of the things that we must never, ever do, brethren, is confuse the seal of God with, uh, if you will, the mark of the beast. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God does not need any kind of a mark to know who his sheep are. You must consider this, brethren. The beast, Satan, the false prophet, they are not omniscient. They do not know everything. They are not able to be everywhere. Therefore, they indeed do need a mark to be present, that they might know who is loyal to them. It's a stunning thing when you dive deep down into this thing. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The beast, they all need it. They need it to see who has pledged themselves as loyal slaves to them. It's a stunning thing. God God being omniscient, God knowing all things, God being omniscient, and, and if you will, omnipresent. He doesn't need anything of the sort. In fact, if you look at the ceiling that happens in chapter 7, it's completely different than what you see here. Sealing is for preservation. God preserves the 144,000. He seals them. This is a mark that is etched, that is, if you will, engraved upon them, which denotes who they follow. Look here, if you would, the only other time, as I said, outside of this book right here, this word is used. Look at Acts chapter 17. And again, it has to do with, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. But it is something that, something that is man-made. It is something that is marking something that is man-made. Look here, Acts chapter 17. Again, the only other place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it's used outside of the book of Revelation is here in Acts chapter 17. Look there at verse Number 28, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are not the offspring, uh, we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone. You see that word graven? That's the word. That's the only other place it is used. It's a man-made thing that is graven by men. This is exactly what he's saying. Look what it says. Graven by the art of men's device. This is a, if you will, we're going to look at this. This is the number of who? It's a number of man. It's a number of a man. It's the number of men in scriptures. And we're going to see that again. This is something that is drummed up, that is perpetrated, if you will, by the false prophet, by the beast, and by Satan himself. It's a stunning thing. In fact, I was thinking in my mind, how could we compare this to something? How would we be able to compare what he is going to do on a worldwide scale, marking all of those who are his, preserving them against this wrath that he's going to pour out on the elect of God? 
The only thing I could think of, brethren, to be quite honest with you, is, was of Hitler himself. And that's nothing. That was, well, I should, it's not nothing. I don't mean it's nothing. But compared to the scale, you remember there was Jews who lived in that time, and they were what? They were tattooed with a number, their own number. That's how they were identified. Not by a name, not by nothing, just like we're going to see here. In Satan's book, in his term, men are just a number, not in God's book. There are names being written down. You're more than a number, brethren. But to the beast, people are nothing but numbers to be used. It is a stunning thing. And this number is extremely unique. So first of all, he uses it to mark those who are his. He needs that. They need to see who's loyal. And second of all, he marks, he etches their bodies. He marks their minds. He marks their souls for destruction, brother. And this is exactly what this is. It is a physical and a spiritual thing that's taking place. Both the physical mark and the spiritual mark of the mind and of the heart and where people are at. Amen. And he will see this and certainly know this as they are definitely marked for torment. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Just look at this real quickly. Again, those who take the mark of the beast. Brethren, let me just say this. Don't ever be fooled. You will never be able to take the mark and go to heaven. It's not going to happen. There are people who say you can take the mark and then you can repent and you can then go to heaven. That is not what the Bible says anywhere. If you take the mark, you are doomed for destruction. You are marked and edged by the evil one himself. No matter what men say. Look here at Revelation chapter, uh, what did I say, 14? Look there at verse number 9. Again, brother, no matter what men may say, look at what Scripture says. Read the Bible. Don't listen to what they say, because I'm telling you right now, according to Holy Writ, if you take the mark, you are marked for destruction. That's exactly what it says. Look there at verse number 9. Revelation chapter 14 Look at verse number 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. See, that's very distinct. If you receive the mark, again, the Bible's calling them out. What does it say? The same shall drink of the wine of who? Of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to be dispelled upon them. Amen. It's funny, isn't it? It's interesting how this gets flipped around. He's marking his people and God is marking them for destruction. It's an amazing, stunning thing Well, how this happens. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angel and the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth what? It stops? No, it ascendeth up forever and ever. This is an eternal thing that takes place. When one takes the mark of the beast and is marked by the evil one himself, you are headed for destruction. And this is exactly what Holy Writ teaches. This is exactly what it says. Let me reiterate. Regardless of what some men might say, you cannot. You cannot take the mark of the beast, the number of his name, and go to heaven and be saved. It's not possible. It is a, if you will, it is something that is completely diametrically opposed one to another. 
It's a stunning thing, right? It's just like sin, 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 right up to your deathbed, and then you confess Christ, and then, you, and then you're saved. You may not have time to confess on your deathbed. You might die like that. Amen? This is much deeper than that. It's much longer than that. It is a loyalty that is pledged to the beast himself. Those who refuse to take the mark, those who refuse to take the mark of his name, brethren, are indeed marked out as well for this wrath that is going to come because he knows, as we've read already, that his time is short. Look what else he does with this mark. Not only is he marking them for his own elite ownership, not only is he marking them for destruction, but also he's going to make it real unpractical for those who refuse to take the mark. And we've kind of seen this. I mean, (laughs) it's funny, not on that grad of a scale, but you know where this COVID shot thing was all headed. (laughs) You know where that was going, right? I mean, we had brothers in here who had to make a decision. Am I going to work or am I not going to take the shot? That's where this goes. This is exactly where it heads. It isn't just about the shot, though, anymore. It's about whether you can eat It's about whether you can work. It's about whether you have access to medicine. It's about whether you have access to anything you need. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this. Look what he does, Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse 17. Look how they pinch this down. Now, again, keeping in mind, this is a one-world government. This is a one-world religion. This is all uh, things that are all going to come together that will pinch this thing down upon those who refuse to take the mark. Look there, if you would, at verse 17 again. The Bible says, And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark. There's three things here, brother, and again, as you look at this. The mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So there's some things there that we see that John is revealing to us concerning this. Again, besides the consistent threat of death, refusing to take the mark, brethren, will have some indeed some dire and practical consequences, as I said. We think about the practicality of all that, and again, we've kind of lived it out just on a small scale, just on a very small scale being threatened again with your job, being threatened again, you can't go in the store, being threatened. It's, it's a stunning thing, brother. But it's very effective. You've noticed. <laughs> How can I say this? Here in his wisdom, <laughs> here in his wisdom, we're going to see that admonition at the end of the text. But brethren, herein was wisdom, even in the little thing that we just went through. Right? All the liberal churches... All of the unbelievers, and I'm talking liberal churches, they're full of unbelievers. All of them did immediately what they were told to do. Immediately. Just like that. All the world. I I still laugh. I still chuckle. I don't know how many times I went into a store, a C-store, and there's some 20-year-old kid that's been brainwashed by the devil himself. He's got 14 masks on. He's got so many of them sticking way out here he can't get to the cash register. And he pulls them down off his face and says, give me a carton of those Marlboro Reds right over there. What a joke, brethren. That is a reprobate mind that has no ability to think and understand what's taking place. It is the same thing here. You will not be able to buy. You will not be able to sell. Brother Keith, your business and mine... Who knows what's going to happen, amen, if we're here. We're going to be, I believe, 
This is after the, the rapture, but the reality of it is this is what's coming. We're getting a little taste of it ourselves. It's a most stunning thing. None of those necessities will be gotten or attained without the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the question becomes then, what is the number? <laughs> what is the number of his name? What is this thing that we're looking at here in the book of Revelation? Let's read the rest of verse 17 and into 18. Look there what the Bible says. There's an important word here that really reveals some things to us. And that no man, verse 17, might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is, is wisdom. <laughs> Here's wisdom, brethren. Let him that hath understanding count. That word count there is very interesting to us. It's an interesting kind of unique word again that's used here. Count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Now, brethren, I admit, as we look at this together, the, the number of concoctions <laughs> that have been concocted uh, over the, the ages of time concerning this number and who the man is and all of that thing, it ranges everybody from Ronald Reagan to Gorbachev to, you know, back, you know, back in the, our good brothers back in the good, good old days, right, the Pope. I mean, it, it ranges everywhere from everything, and it's quite an amazing thing to behold, actually, when you consider that. But this Antichrist will indeed, brethren, have a universal designation consisting of his name within a numbering system. That word count, as I said, draws our attention. Do you know what that word means right there? Why I believe this is a literal thing, because that word means to use pebbles in enumeration. It means to count. One pebble, two pebble, three pebbles, four pebbles. That's what that word means. It means to calculate the number. What is the number? That's the question. Again, that is, there's this wild speculation everywhere about what the number is and who it is. Let me just say this. The exact identification, brethren, uh, if you will, is unclear, although... This was, indeed, a common practice, if you will, in the ancient world. You do realize that both the Hebrew and the Greek letters, if you will, were assigned many times numerical value. So what do I mean by that? Well, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so forth. That actually took place, in fact... They have found in ancient ruins in Pompeii. They found this inscription. It's a most interesting thing. Is there, you know, again, now there's terminology for this, and I don't think there's any kind of a weird, freaky kind of numer you know, numerology and that kind of stuff. I think it's much more deeper than that. But they found this in Pompeii in the ruins. It said in a letter, I love her whose number is 545. And so, again, there was this kind of thing taking place. This was commonplace within the ancient world, that they would numerically give letters numbers, and this particular love, you know, his love was 545. <laughs> it's an amazing thing, brother, when you consider that. The number 666, though, John says here, is the number of a man. A number in holy writ, which I believe we see over and over again, denotes man's incompleteness. 
I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that's what this is actually giving. His falling short of God's glory, brethren, God's perfection, his completeness in every conceivable way. Think about this for a moment, brothers. (laughs) Now again, not getting into weird numerology, but there's some things. When you look in Scripture, there are some numbers that pop up in Scripture. (laughs) Well, let's take number three, for instance. Think of the number of things that are associated with the number of three in Scripture. Well, I don't know. There's the Trinity, the Father, Son. That's three. There was, you know, three days, three nights. I mean, it goes on and on and on. The number five is very prevalent. And so here is the number six. In fact, I think we can look at Scripture and say that it is indeed, as John describes it, the number of a man. In fact, does anybody remember? We're going to read the Scripture. But since it's Wednesday evening, I'll ask the question, does anybody know what day man was created on? Can you remember that? Yeah, it was the, it was the sixth day. Does anybody know what God did in order to complete? So man's created on the sixth day. When did God rest? On the seventh day. He completed his work. He made it complete. God's number, of course, I believe, is seven in Scripture. And I think we can, we can, I can look at that and show you that. Look at Genesis chapter 1. The first time man is ever mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1. And again, this is a triple six, six, six. This is indeed the number of a man, the Bible says. So look here, if you would, at Genesis chapter 1. And we'll just read it again. I asked the question. This, of course, is the first mention of man. He's created on the sixth day. Look here, if you would, verse number 23. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse number 23. The Bible says, And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So there we are. We're now going into the sixth day in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his his kind, cattle and and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind. It was so. And God made the beasts of the earth and after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth uh, upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. The first mention of man, he's created on the sixth day. That is, I believe, the number of a man. And there's, again, over and over again, not to get all weirded, and I'm not, again, into some of this freaky weird stuff that goes on with numerology, but there is a clear pattern with some numbers in Scripture, no doubt about it. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth. And over every creeping thing that uh, creepeth upon the ground, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. The image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them as we go along there, right? In verse, you jump down there to verse uh, 31, uh, if you will. In evening and morning were the sixth day. So during the sixth day, and our children, all of our homeschool children, I'm sure you've all been going through it, creation and all of these things. We know this, right, Levi? Right, Seth? Right, Selah? Huh? As we work on these things, amen? But look at chapter 2, as God brings through his perfect completeness. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Man created on the sixth day, God perfecting it through the seventh day, his work. Does anybody know, because it is Wednesday night, 
and I like to ask questions, and I, I hate it when the preacher does that, but does anybody know how many times when Jesus was walking on the earth that men asked him to perform a miracle to prove that he was the Son of God? Anybody know how many times he was asked? Six times. Six times. Let me give you the verses. I've got to get my glasses on, but I'll give them to you. I wrote them down here. Matthew 12, 38, Matthew 16, Matthew 24, 3, Luke eleven sixteen, John 2, 18, and John 6, 30. Anybody know how many people, when Jesus was being brought up on trial, anybody know how many people declared him innocent? Again, the number of a man, six times. Six people declared him to be innocent. It's a stunning, really, thing when you look in Scripture. Let me give you their names. Pontius Pilate. Pilate's wife, King Herod, Judas Iscariot, when he brought back the money, remember, this is blood money, I, he's innocent, he declared him innocent, Judas did, eventually. One of the thieves and the Roman centurion who was there at the cross declaring him innocent. Six men declared him innocent. In fact, it's interesting when we consider this. If I asked you tonight, since it's question evening, what is the most hateful thing that man has ever done to God. What is one thing that you can think of? The most evil, hateful thing that God ordained that men have ever done to God. They crucified his son. That is the most evil thing that man has ever done. Anybody know how long Jesus was on the cross? <laughs> Anybody know how long he was there? Let us look. Again, the number of a man, the most evil thing men could ever do. They hung the Savior, and he was there for six hours. The number six, again, over and over and over again. You think of it, brethren. It's an amazing thing. Look here, if you would, Mark chapter 15. And again, just as you try and remain biblical with it, and again, I have some IFB friends who go wild and crazy with this stuff. I mean, out on the edge. I mean, it is just absolutely insanity. But this is just biblical. It's just biblical. You see it. This, this is clear. We're not making this up. I'm not trying to make the scripture say something. Six, 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 six. It just keeps popping up over and over again. Look at Mark 15, if you will. Look at verse number 24. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them that every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Well, of course, this is, of course, Roman time, so that would be, what, 9 o'clock in the morning. So at 9 a.m., the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, they begin to crucify him. They, they begin crucifying him at 9 a.m. Look at verses 33 and 34. That's 9 a.m. Look at verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour was come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it started at 9 a.m. It's now noon, noon to 3 how many hours is that, brethren? That's six hours. He's placed on the cross. He's there. The darkness comes. We know exactly. I've said this before. We know exactly when, when God, uh, if you will, poured out his wrath upon his son, those three hours when it was dark. But it's during the six-hour period of men's most hated thing they could ever do to, to God, and that is to crucify his son at God's all, if you will, definitely predetermined plan. It's an amazing thing. Sixth hour to the ninth hour, 
So we're at 3 p.m. That's 9 to 3 is 6 hours. Now listen, it's interesting. Again, you could go on and on with this stuff. You really could. I don't want to do that. But did you know that this series of 666 is used two other times in Scripture? It isn't just here in the book of Revelation. It's used two other times. And it's most interesting where God used it when you consider this, brethren. Again, keeping in mind, as John described it, it is a number of a man. It is a man's number. Okay? It is what he is. It denotes his imperfections, his shortcomings, his falling short of God's glory and his completeness and his perfection. One of the wisest men, well, the wisest man in Scripture, he was given something that is connected and denotes this very number. Look, if you would, with me in the, in the book of 1 Kings. Look at Solomon, King Solomon. Look here, if you would, 1 Kings chapter 10. And again, keeping in mind that Solomon, in all of his wisdom, all, of the, all that God had given him still fell way short. He turned from God. He, if you will, he fell way short of God. Look here, if you would, at verse number 14. 1 Kings chapter 10, look at verse number 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 600, three score, and six talents of gold. So again, we see this number being used here in the Old Testament. It is a number of men. It's a number of men. And how do we know that? Look at his throne. Look as he, was, as he built the throne down just a little bit farther. Number six comes in again. But this is used, as John used it, 666. But look again where the number six pops up. Look down just a little farther at verse 18. Look there if you would. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had how many steps? Six steps. And the top of the throne was round behind. And there were uh, stays on either side of the, of, on the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the stays. Even Solomon's throne only had six steps. And again, brethren, this is denoting the shortcomings of Solomon's kingdom and all of his glory. He still fell short of the glory of God. It is indeed a number of a man. In all of his power and wisdom, Solomon is counted. Remember what that word means? To count with what? Doing, doing, doing. To, to count with pebbles. To literally count with pebbles. In all of his wisdom, all of his glory, all of his splendor, he is still counted as a man falling short of the glory of God. 666. Look at one more. The only other place in the Bible it's used, Ezra. If you would, Ezra chapter 2, it's used there again. This exact sequence. Look there, if you would, Ezra chapter 2. Look at verse number 13. The children of Adonikam, 606 and 6. 666, again, the number of a man, the other place where it is used. The number 666 in the book of Revelation is indeed, as John called it, the number of a man. It emphasizes the beast, brethren, listen, who appears to be the epitome of human achievement and independence from God. Again, this, is, this has to do with rebellion. This has to do with I mean, man's rebellion against God, all of it. What appears to be, this is amazing, what appears to be the epitome 
of independence from God and a ruler who is above all. It's a stunning thing, brother, to consider. I keep saying that because I am always stunned. In the end, falls short. He misses the mark. You understand that? He misses the mark of God and is cast into the lake of fire by him who is indeed whole and holy and perfect and complete. It is a stunning thing, brother, to see God in his victory. God as he casts 666, the beast, and all of them into the lake of fire. Because it is indeed, brethren, the number of a man. There is no doubt about it. Let me close with a practical point tonight. During the Great Tribulation, as I said earlier, there will indeed be a one-world government. There will indeed be a one-world religion. Amen? And a one-world economic system. There is no question about it. There's no doubt about that. Which are tethered to the mark, to the name of the beast, for the number of his name. It's all tethered to that. It's all going to be tied to that. And what men do will be tied to that. It's an amazing thing. Therefore, tonight, as we close, as the Spirit of God led John to write in our text, I commend to us all, and I commend to our brethren in the future who may be living this all out. Here is wisdom, brothers, sisters. Here is wisdom. Let him who hath understanding count. Count. Use pebbles in enumeration. The number of the beast. Six hundred, three score, and six. This is so important. I like, as I close, what one pastor said. The false prophets speak sweetness and light, but deals in death when it comes to the true believers, to the children of God. This, brethren, ultimately is what we must all be ever keenly aware of. Keep in mind, brethren, as I said, here is wisdom. Let him count the number of the beast. 603 score and six. Let's pray. Father, tonight we again know there's much depth here in our text. We understand that all of this is going to be worked out according to your glory. And I, I, I can't get over in my own mind as I was studying this out once again. That there's this mark that's going to be given to those who worship the beast, the image of the beast, those who will bow down. And in the end, again, our glorious God, who is perfect and holy and good, has marked him out already to be cast into the lake of fire. It is a glorious thing for us to consider. And Father, tonight, as I said, even the little bit that we felt, a little pinched, a little pinched in this whole COVID stuff. 
Get the shot or stay at home. Get the shot or don't come to work. Get the shot or you can't go in the store. Get the shot, do this, do that. And those who are the children of God, even in this era, (laughs) were given wisdom and discernment and understanding by the Spirit of God to say, oh, no, wait a minute. This isn't right. This is evil. It is unholy, and it is not good. It is ungodly that we would close down the churches, keep the baby-killing mills going, keep everything evil running along. Amazing. But the holy things of God we must shut down, not on your life. A true child of God would not fall for that. The Spirit of God would illuminate, as he did in the hearts of your children, the false lies, the falsities of it all. And Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that you would be so good to us to do that. And even now, as we have looked in this text tonight, the great deceiver with one of the, I think, the greatest acts of deception ever to be perpetrated when an inanimate idol is brought to life. Stunning thing. And all the world, all the world, those who are of the world, those who are of the earth, not the elect of God, but those who are of the earth, will indeed wander after the beast. They will wander out of the way. They will drop immediately. They will worship at his command. But Christianity is exclusive. Christianity is the one true religion. And I say that, as James said it, in a good biblical sense. There is one God, the Father, one Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, if you will, our Helper, our comforter, the Spirit of God. Three in one. And it is exclusive. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God living in us gives us the strength and the power to have wisdom, to have understanding, to see these things. And we praise you for it all. We give you the glory because only you deserve our worship and our glory and, and your glory given as you Again, reveal yourself in such a unique way here in the book of Revelation. We love you now and pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.